Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors impacting the Asia region and beyond through shared stories, lessons, and ideas helping us all grow. This week, we sit down with my friend Jacqueline Lee, who is currently founder of a health and wellness platform called The Conscious Reboot. She has time and time and again proven to me her vegan lifestyle is pretty awesome. I hope you meat eaters won't hold it against her as we discuss some topics that will benefit anyone who listens. Previously, Jacqueline has led marketing efforts in a fashion startup called Shopper. And for anyone who loves ice cream, she helped launch and scale an extremely popular vegan ice cream brand here in Malaysia and Singapore called Kind Cones. In this episode, we will briefly hear about Jacqueline's journey, which is critical in framing her experiences with burnout in the context of startups. We also discuss the ideas of balance and how that's even possible in the world of startups. We also talk about coaching and what that means, frameworks for wellness, and getting stuck and learning how to get unstuck. If you want to get more out of this episode, we will also reference a great article on wellness written by First Round Capital, which interviewed Jasmina Archbold, who is an extremely insightful wellness coach and psychotherapist, which we will share to you in the show notes. If you're ready to get well, let's dive in and listen. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So today we have with us Jacqueline Lee. I guess for now, we could say you're the founder of something called The Conscious Reboot, right? Something. <laughs> it's, it's early stages. We have talked about it back and forth a little bit. You were talking about branding, how to position. These days, though, how are you framing it? What's the elevator pitch? What, what exactly is The Conscious Reboot? Yeah, so essentially for me, it's like a health and wellness platform. My focus right now for it is to encourage people that it's possible to lead a flexitarian lifestyle. And that was that basically mm. stemmed from my own experience with my husband, because I am vegan, to simplify it, so lead a plant-based lifestyle. My husband is not. And we managed to make our life's different lifestyles work. And the whole idea came when we went for a walk one day, and he just commented, I never imagined in my life that a vegan lifestyle works for me because when I'm home, all we do is I don't cook any meat, but I, I tell him like, you're welcome to make whatever you want, but he doesn't want to be bothered. So he eats whatever I eat. And the whole thing for me is like, how do I make it enjoyable for him where he doesn't feel like, ugh, I'm just eating vegetables and his, he's miserable, is not enjoying it. And I decided, why don't I translate that whole experience with him where he gives his meat eaters experience of what I make for him. And just to show people that, hey, it's actually can be an enjoyable experience. And so it's funny, like, I feel like I'm slowly converting his family They're from South Africa, <laughs> they love barbecue. And yeah. then my family back in the US, they're still like, no, we can't be bothered. <laughs> it's hard to convert your own family, probably, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't want to get, we're already getting off a little bit off topic, but there there is a fine line though, right? Between what is, healthy is already a convoluted word itself, right? It's really about like portioning sizes and all these different things that go into what is quote unquote healthy, but like vegetarian food in Asia is well known. Vegan is popular, but at the same time, there's a lot of unhealthy vegetarians too. So I guess there is a qualification to saying it fits into your lifestyle as a meat eater, you can eat vegan, but at the same time, there's, you're probably towing a fine line of being very delicious, but also not healthy too, right? Actually, I'll clarify more so how do you enjoy a plant, like a whole food plant-based diet? 
Mm, so I don't okay. really buy a lot go. of pre-packaged things. Yeah, occasionally yeah. I do because I'm not going to be making my own, slaving away to make my own cheese. And it's something that I do miss. Yeah. But for the most part, everything is based off of like fresh, you know, fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables. Yeah. yeah, you do have a point there. It, you can lead a junk food, vegan lifestyle and abide by the new animal. Yeah, um, correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many things that go into that in terms of you know, beliefs and mm-hmm. whatnot. But okay, before we get too sidetracked, let me give a brief outline of who we're talking to so people have an idea of where we're heading and uh, who you are. So you were born in Ohio, small town, mm-hmm. but I grew up in New Jersey. Should, should we tell the story of how we know each other, actually? Yeah, sure. It's, it's funny. Like our mothers are really good friends. Uh, they met at the workplace. They worked at the same bank. And I don't really recall her mentioning that your mom, Ty, having a son. But then it's only when we were in Asia, like in Malaysia at the same time, where it started coming through the... um, Yes. Yes. And then that's how we met and then started... Correct. Essentially, yeah, your mom, my mom are really good friends at the bank. I would always hear about Mercedes and I was just like, okay, great. (laughs) Nice lady at the bank. Mom has a friend. Great. Then it turns out like one day we were both in KL. Many decades later, probably. We both grew up in New Jersey, didn't know each other. Yeah. And then just our, our parents like, oh, you should meet for taxes or something. Yeah. Something random. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we actually got to know each other and actually became friends after that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you're Chinese Filipino, right? Yeah. I will say I'm 100% Chinese, but my mom was born okay. and raised in the Philippines. So I do have a little bit of that like Filipino culture in me. But you have family in the Philippines too. Do I do. Yeah. Okay. So grew up in small town, New Jersey, Asian American experience. So you went to NYU for economics and Asian studies. Mm-hmm. Why the Asian studies? I feel it's like a very Asian American thing to do. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I had this very American upbringing. Not, like my parents are not very Asian in the respect that my dad, who was born in Hong Kong, but he had come to the U.S. when he was quite young, like seven. Yeah. So He was quite Americanized at that point, other than speaking Chinese to his grandmother. We we didn't really eat very traditional Chinese meals at home either. Mm. And my mother, being that she was born and raised in the Philippines, yeah, she's Chinese, but she's very Western in that Filipino sense. So I also, I lost my, my ability to speak Chinese. I wanted to get more in touch with where I was from, learning a little bit about the literature, the history, philosophy and language. So I learned Chinese okay. being that I don't really still don't have that many Chinese friends didn't really stick. So uh, very American Chinese, I guess. Yes. Yeah. After schooling, you were a drug dealer of sorts for a while. Yeah. I always uh, joke about that. So my first job at graduating, I ended up in advertising and I interviewed some for some cool accounts like Wendy's at that time, there was a whole scandal about someone finding a finger in the chili. And oh, yeah. yeah, if you remember that, but then it didn't end up getting that. Instead, I was started to interview a lot for pharma. It was just big, a lot of pharma advertising. And I ended up getting um, hired for a role for two below the belt drugs, which is genital herpes and for incontinence. And so like in working in advertising, you do a lot of research. And so you sit in on these focus groups and people talk about like these afflictions and you're like, oh my God, like. That just makes, that puts everything in a whole new perspective. But at the end of the day, I kind I did that for four years. Wasn't, I felt like I was just pushing drugs that I didn't feel like people really needed. And so that's why I called myself a, you know, a drug dealer in a way. And so that was when I shifted more to nonprofit. I wanted to do something that had a little bit more of a social impact 
And yeah. at that time, the market was bad. I think it was like 2008. It was around that time, yeah. 2008, 2009. Market was maybe recovering. And so we had the ad agency I was at had lost a bunch of accounts. And me being I was one of the newer recruits, I ended up getting cut. But the president of the agency was really good friends with the director of the nonprofit that ended up getting hired. They were looking for someone, mm. something that I wanted to do. So it was always great to have those conversations yeah. so people know um, how to connect the dots. And so that's how I ended up making that shift from advertising to nonprofit. And I worked for the Estee Lauder companies. Evelyn Lauder had breast cancer, so she created this foundation. So I ended uh-huh. up working on her foundation in the cause marketing side of things. So really being the bridge between corporates and trying to bring in money through their marketing initiatives to support the foundation. And so that was really fun. It was very different. And then it was a lot of going around the globe to, I always say, hobnobbing with the rich as well and organizing events yeah. and trying to get and having them support the foundation. And then I, I did that for about four years as well. Four years seems to be that sweet spot in a, in a certain industry <laughs> And before I move on. And then I decided, oh God, I can't really go anywhere unless I kill my boss. And I love my boss. So I decided to just leave that. And I yeah. ended up spending a year um, in South America, just traveling. It was just a time for like personal development, maybe did some volunteer work. And then I came back after that year and I was like, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back into nonprofit? How do I make impact? Mm. And I was presented with an opportunity to come to Asia, Malaysia specifically. I'm like, Malaysia, what country yeah. is this? I haven't even heard of it. And I decided, you know what? Even if the pay is not what I'm used to, it's the experience. Like, and if I didn't like yeah. it, I just always come back to the US, not like the US is closed mm-hmm. to me. And I decided to do to just go. And so I ended up working for a company called Mind Valley. And they are They're basically known as an online education platform focused in personal development. And coming from like New York, I was like, what's personal development? But my role was I would travel around the world kind of orchestrating these huge events for high net worth individuals interested in this space. So during the day, we would organize like TED Talk style events Mm. where we'd bring in um, experts in specific areas from mindfulness, how to optimize your day, et cetera. To And the evening is more like networking. How do we create events where people can come together and connect in a more meaningful way? And I did that. And that was my first foray in like personal development. What are the Mm. things that you really do to understand yourself better so that you can grow as an individual? And while I worked there, I was like, oh my God, I didn't believe in any of this stuff. Like meditate. Like, why would I want to meditate? I don't want to do any of this stuff. And (laughs) when I left... That was literally when I started to actually adopt some of these practices myself. Uh And, but I left and I ended up moving into, so like my experience is really nonlinear. I've just gone all over the place. So the next thing I ended up doing was I worked for a tech star focused on consumer fashion. So they, they were kind, it was like sky scanner for fashion. You were looking for something specific. You type it in the keyword and this algorithm would pull up all the retailers or um, brick and mortars that would have what you're looking for. And I only, I ended up getting into that space because I was just surrounded by, I was in the startup community just Mm. by the fact of who I was living with, my flatmates. So one of my flatmates was a 
Oh, not kind of. She was she is she was a community builder within the KL community, and so she would invite me in a lot of the events, and I would meet people. So that was how I ended up at Shopper, the the startup that I was working at, yeah. and I did that for about three years, and that was mm. like my my first experience where I experienced burnout, but I didn't really realize that I was burnt out, and and then once I left, I took another break. So I had. So through that, I had or I had organized. I like to organize a lot of lunches or brunches for women, so we can network. And through that, I met somebody who was launching a vegan ice cream brand. And through that meeting, because I had I was transitioning at that time to becoming fully vegan, and I was really passionate about how do people live a more conscious lifestyle. And she needed some help, and so that's how I ended up joining Kind Cones. That was after Shopper. I'm kind of helping to scale this brand within Southeast Asia. And so in between Shopper and Kind Cones, I took another break. I ended up going to Bali. I was like, how do I do a creative reset? Because I'm like burnt out. Yeah. And I ended up be doing a course to be a raw vegan, yeah, certified raw vegan chef. So I have that under my belt as well, like randomly, not that I do that on a, you know, yeah. utilize the skills on a day-to-day basis, but Kind Cones was, worked on it, was really fun. My first experience at F&B, again, a totally new category space for me, but that was the the role that put the nail in the coffin for me in terms of burnt out, was like my second run-in with it. And that was when I started doing a lot more reflective work on like, why is this happening again? What is it like everything, like sometimes an individual thinks of from an external, what are the external external stimuli that are causing this? But then the day it's like, what are the things about what I'm doing? How do I operate that are responding? So it's that like relationship. Yeah, so that's been basically my whole journey from New York to Asia. And now I have since left Kind Cones around June of last year. And then I was figuring out, okay, what do I want to do? And I ended up doing some like freelance for a company that was focused on the, the UNSGD goals with their consumer products. But I wasn't in alignment with the founders. So I decided not to pursue the employment path. Yeah. So I ended up going back to the US for a bit. And in that time, I was also in the midst of a health coaching program which I graduated earlier this year. So I went back to the US, just took the time to, again, reset from all a lot of the stress and the burnout from kind cones. And I was like, what am I gonna do? Do I wanna create, being in tech, having had all these experience, my own personal experience, maybe I don't wanna coach people one-on-one, that wasn't my intent in doing the program. And so I was thinking, maybe I can build a platform like a health coaching platform where I match people to health coaches that specialize in whatever health issues that they have. And so I, I pondered upon that, but then I was like, what to better understand that maybe I should really dive into getting some experience coaching as well. I always like to have some experience before I like some background before I do anything. And so I ended up starting to work for a functional part-time for a functional medicine practitioner and so I still do that, but I still have the bandwidth to explore and work on my own projects now that I'm back in the region because I ended up getting married. So that's how I ended up being able to yes. come back into the country. So that was my <laughs> news. 
Perfect. Yeah. There's so much to unpack with the journey. I think, and I think the journey is very essential to what we want to talk today. Like later on, we're going to get deep into wellness coaching and a lot of those themes you talk about, like founder burnout. And uh, I think there's a lot of stuff in between there uh, that we could probably discuss that are really important to, for people to also recognize in their own journey. And I, I love the way you're going about maybe trying to, to solve wellness in general. Like it's like wellness is a very popular, I guess, vertical industry in the past few years for Asia, but it's more born out of the fact that they're copying a lot of these companies from the US, which have, yeah. they've raised like almost like a billion dollars, a few hundreds of millions of dollars. So the valuations are high. The revenue is really high. But I do think there's uh, a lot to be said. But before we go forward, I, I want I have to do a little bit of my greedy section of knowing a little bit more about you as a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're both from Jersey, Jersey girl, Jersey guy. What, what is your version of you know the small town American experience growing up in New Jersey? Uh, to be honest, I really... Until I left the US, I didn't realize how much of a sheltered upbringing I had. When I went to college, I didn't even know what banana meant. And people were calling for that. <laughs> or like, wow. or what F or what fob was like fresh off the yeah. boat. And I think that was the reason for that was I didn't grow up in a very multicultural town. My town was predominantly like white Jewish kids. So I grew up like going to bar mitzvahs and in <laughs> same thing, like New York and working, I worked a lot with a lot of my colleagues are Jewish. So it was really like understanding more of the Jewish traditions. Yeah. And it's also in a small town. What do you do to keep yourself occupied? It's not like you're in a big city where you have a lot of events to stimulate yourself. Honestly, you have to drive around to get anywhere, like drive. Mm. And it's like here in Singapore, people complain that um, going 20 minutes to the other side of the island is like trek. And I'm like, dude, I have to travel 20 minutes just to even get to the closest mall where I live in here. Yes. So it's just putting things into perspective. And I was sharing with you like that funny, this funny story about how um, when I, my, the first city that I, the town, it's not really city, the town that I um, lived in when I was in Jersey is called Morristown. And I think we were only there for like two years and I was about like three to five years old. And I just remember going to my neighbor's house and they were much older than me, but they were people's pastimes literally in the suburbs because there's nothing to do was huffing air freshener. And I'm like young and I'm just like, I don't even recall if I participated. Probably not. I was just maybe observing as a bystander because I was so young. don't remember. But it's just like those types of things where you're just like in the suburbs, this is the stuff that you do to have fun. So, yeah. Yeah. We literally have the same experience. We were probably 10, 15 minutes from each other and also the next town over in Rockway, but it's exactly what you described. It's predominantly a white town. I did go to a, t- I literally have maybe 20 yarmulkes because I went to so many bar mitzvahs. <laughs> and yeah, it's this, the suburban experience was something that really shaped like why I wanted to go to a big city and leave and yeah. just get, get more. How did you identify, how do you identify now though, with, in the context of all this, with your experience and your journey, do you still very feel very... American from more Asian, you feel something in between? I just, I feel like I still have a lot of uh, close group of friends back in um, the US, but I do feel like we are on a very different trajectory and journey than the people or the community that I'm with in Asia. Here, I just feel there's, or maybe the community that I'm just a part of, it's a very, uh, from, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, still like a lot of things developing, being hatched. Not to yeah. say in the U.S. it's not happening. It's just a little bit more mature. And here it's just quite exciting. The menta- So the people that I hang out with, it's very different. I'm not with the let's get married, let's get a house, yeah. let's have a kid. Yeah. And I have friends there and I'm not judging them. That's the path they've chose. 
but I just feel like I, I choose to associate with people that they're just not in that, in, in that they're not on that path. And they're not all consuming with climbing that corporate ladder. And here, a lot of people are more, or maybe it's just the community I'm around, surrounded by. Yeah. A lot of them are really into personal development. How do I grow as a person? How do I? Yeah. yeah. And so maybe more spiritual. Maybe that's the, yeah. for I mean, lack of a better word. The, con- the contrast is very real because you went recently. So that's probably what you're describing is what you went back to hang back with your family back in Jersey again and, and traveling around. And I guess you probably got in touch with some of your friends and, and that's what you were feeling, right? Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah. And then it's a good point because it, it one of the lessons there is you are the sum of your probably closest friends that you have. And if everyone you're surrounded by is in this kind of mentality of growth and development and try, trying to build something, it's definitely going to rub off onto you. Mm-hmm. So if that's you know how you want your life to shape up, definitely find people to surround yourself in that. And it really does come from your community. And, and I, the other point is Asia is very exciting for sure still. It's the, it's crazy how much everything is growing and changing. And basically from where you, when you first joined Asia till now, it's also very different. It's just nonstop change and growth. And, and even you've jumped from different region to region and had to restart over and over again. But I, I think that's uh, it's supposed to be very exciting. It is. And as you talk about like jumping from one place to another, that also plays into, as you talk about community, it also plays into an individual's like uh, mental health or emotional well-being. I- I'll just share a little bit. Like I was burnt out. So I started my, my journey with Kind Coins in Malaysia. So we started there. And yeah. then we ended up expanding the business into Singapore. And that was that kind of, I think when I moved to Singapore, I think that really amplified the burnout for me just because oh, interesting. Okay. It, so it was already on its way. It was just like the groundwork was already there. But when I went to, when I moved to Singapore, what really, the thing was I had no community there, no support group. Mm. And so so yeah. that what's really important yeah. is having a network and you, we can dive into it in a little bit later, but we had, you had shared with me a really interesting article um, from first round about self-care and a lot of what was written there resonated with me because a lot of, the social component is a huge trigger. It's, it, it should be not a trigger, like a sign, a signal, a symptom, yeah. like what's going on because my normal bubbly self, I mean, bubbly as can be, I'm still on the, on the whole scale. I'm a little bit more introverted, but I do, I do still like to socialize, but I started being like closing in any time I had, I only wanted for me, I couldn't be bothered to to spend my energy with others. No energy exchange. It was just so depleted. Mm. And I realized that I just, I also didn't have that community of like-minded people that I could talk to. What am I going through? or talk to people yeah. about business ideas, growing things. And it felt very lonely. And I think because I was missing that part, that kind of added fuel to the fire and made my whole um, experience with burnout or just the recovery as well, more prolonged, just because yeah. I wasn't able to talk to somebody or have somebody to be accountable for, even though I probably could have gone to a professional, but at that point mm-hmm. I can go back. That wasn't something that I was thinking about. But actually, that's, this is not your first encounter with burnout. And I would probably like looking at your journey, you talked about the time that you were 
working in New York, right? You were doing sales of drugs. Uh, you were doing hobnobbing with the wealthy for breast cancer and research. But that led to a sabbatical. Was there a form of burnout that led to a sabbatical? Of you, so you took one year off and you traveled all over Latin America. Was that burnout yeah. or no? I so I I don't think that led to burnout. I think it just it was like. It was more of a, what do I want to do next? I want to take this time for myself. What other opportunity can I take to just take a, a career break? But I recognize in reflecting back on who I am as an individual, I do reflect patterns of how I operated, where yes. it would have led to where I ended up now. So I, I have a personality where I'm, I'm a control freak. <laughs> and so I like things done a certain way. And I just, I don't, I feel like if somebody needs something, I can get it done. I'm the reliable one. Anyone can look to me, I'll make it happen. And so I, you know, that, and I noticed too, there's this, there's a seed of resentment that builds when I feel like another person does not pull their weight in the, in the work relationship. So I have, I had a a colleague, uh, she actually issues supporting me as well. And I felt like I always had to come and, do her work because either she was like too slow, didn't get it, always missed certain details. And I was very detail oriented and caught it. And, but at the end of the day, like, I think I was just bored and that's why I ended up having the career break. But that just led into like me involving myself in things where if I create a boundary and just goes, nope, that's her responsibility. If she can't manage it, that's her problem. And that led into <clears throat> I'm going to skip over Mind Valley because I don't think uh, no, yeah. that there's much there. But when I was at Shopper, I had experience working at startup. It's, it's intense. Yep. Even though my role was head of marketing, you dip your toes in other areas yeah. as well. And, and it's very fast paced. And I actually really enjoyed that. But at the same time, because it was very, what do you call it? The staffing was, you're running an elite lean uh, manpower doing a lot more yeah. and there was a time I remember like two years into my role I I had woken up migraines and just throwing up and I was like what's going on and I, I was being the hypochondriac that I am sometimes yeah. I'm always uh, telling my husband I'm like do I have COVID like any symptom that I have I'm always thinking <laughs> yeah. like, you're a psycho he's like you don't have COVID but anyways I was like throwing up I was having migraines and my flatmates were like, holy shit, what's going on? Should we take you to the hospital? And I was bedridden. Like I couldn't function for three days because the migraines were so debilitating. And I just kept on throwing up. And even though I wasn't eating anything, just my body was like trying yeah. to expel something from, from my system. Yeah. And then I realized the body is so intuitive. Like you have to listen to it. Like it, it's sending you signals. Like when something, when you're out of balance, your body, it's going to, it's usually show through in your body. So yeah. like, when you have headaches, body aches, throwing up, just feeling sluggish, lethargic. And so I'm trying to be more aware whenever I'm feeling out of balance, like something's off, mm-hmm. like what's contributing to that? What's happening in my life? And so I realized in retrospect, not at that point in time, yeah. I was burnt out. Like I was just overextending myself because I didn't say I'm working nine to seven or whatever. I literally would be like, I'm working nine to six. I would have dinner, go out, whatever. But then I'd go back on the laptop and just keep yeah. working late into the night. And there was just yeah. and there was just no boundaries. Like founder would message me. I would message him. 
I also lived with girls that were in that environment too, and they would work late into the night. So again, it was just like, we're feeding off of that energy. And I realized it was depleting me. And so that was my first, that was my first experience. And I realized over time, like I wasn't, I wasn't creative. I I didn't feel inspired anymore. I wasn't being creative. And I was like, why is that? Because in the beginning I was so excited. And I think when you stop feeling excited and you feel like your creative Mm -hmm. creativity runs dry it's because you're like on that track for burnout and that's why people always say what can you do to creatively reset and that's what and that's what people talk about self-care self-care is not just like doing things it's more about self-reflection what's the self-work i can do on myself but yeah Yeah. i mean there's i think there's a a subtle difference right so like we're taking up some of these concepts from from the first round article and i I would argue so there was the the five kind of uh, pillars she was uh, mentioned for a model you could think of wellness which was like uh, physical Mm -hmm. mental spiritual social and intellectual you could argue that maybe and i think recognizing the pattern from your first experiences in new york there must have been something like like it wasn't a physical burnout probably not right and it probably wasn't like uh, intellectual. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was, I don't I, know if you were stimulated that way. Yeah, it could have been a little bit of intellectual burnout. And maybe. Yeah, maybe. It was just, it was not as pronounced. As, yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. What, what I Which I think is very important to distinctify <laughs> because it's almost like, like a, I don't know, a compass or some type of, some way to orient that knowing what's out of whack. And it's like you said, it's more of a, like the life in America that you can lead if you're on like climbing the ladder or that kind of race, it's, it's gradual. Whereas like if you're a startup, you're compressing all of that. And so it, I think it leads to different, two different types of burnout. One is just more nefarious and subtle. Like it's just quietly comes up to you. But like I think you just left early enough to, for not to catch you yeah. and you went on this really long journey to reset which i think is a pretty good theme too resetting is, is probably very important to this when you do get burnout but then the other type of burnout you're describing it was just like the more one that's very typical and common and easier to spot like for startups so you're just physically tired you're not eating right you're not sleeping you're just working and like you mentioned it, it could be a result of boundaries and stuff but i've landed on a position that for early stage startups for a period of time that will be critical. Otherwise, you just don't have a business or you don't go anywhere. But I guess that kind of begs the question that if, if that's the case, how long can you do it? And how do you actually shift gears into something more sustainable, assuming you can get p- past the part where the business actually is more stable? Yeah, but I'm always a belie- and I get where you're coming from. You need to get things going in order for it to take yeah. off. But at the same time, I'm a huge proponent of the thing where it's like, if your cup is empty, like you can't serve others when your cup is empty. So it's, you also need to take that time to nourish yourself. And I'm not, and it's, as you say, it's that balance. Like how can you still work hard, but still allocate maybe even like a little portion where you just feel like you're grounding yourself again, you're centering yourself again. And it's just making sure that you create that balance. Cause I think that's the thing we just end up becoming so out of balance that once you realize that's what's happening, and then you try to rectify it, the whole, the ability to even just recover takes so much longer than if you just made that gradual, the, the decision to make that small change in the initial when you were actually in the startup. Be like, okay, I'm just gonna take a half an hour, an hour, just do this, yeah. that's just me time. It's one hour. And that's the thing I try to tell myself. I'm like, yeah, no work, I gotta get it done. And I just, and then I, I, I remove that hour of me time that could have yeah. been used to replenish myself and I could have actually been more efficient and effective in my job than if I just gone and ran through it without that break. 
without that time set. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of nuance here because in, in, in a startup, it's a combination of sprints and pacing mm-hmm. in the context of a massive marathon, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there are times where if you're not sprinting, you're just going to die. Like the, the boogeyman behind you, you're like, you know, startups are so fragile. I, I always say this on the podcast. It's just so fragile. Like anything can make it cause it to fail. But I guess it's a very interesting point. So the one thing I've always struggled against was when you're hiring people and you meet someone, it's like, oh, like this is like a black and white, hundred uh, percent. Like you can't reach me at this point in time. But if everyone on team is like working hard and the company's about to die, like that doesn't really fit for this kind of time period. But I guess what you're saying is it's like meeting in the middle between the needs of the company plus the needs of yourself. But it's more of in pieces. It's not really like black and white on either side. Yeah, exactly. Right? So like I guess there is a way to be critically engaged to the success of a startup. But at the same time, probably doing the self-work like you mentioned earlier to find what pieces need to be incorporated into your regular routine to hold on to sound so you don't actually burn out faster. Because I, I did notice for like my, like most of my 10 years doing this and building and scaling startups, like when you just externally give out accountability to the company or someone else or your partners or your investors, I just ignored so much of other things in my life that did not get developed. Whether it was intellectual, whether it was social or whether it was physical with food and sleep. And then a lot of that does just come back to haunt you later, which I, I do regret. So I think it is a good point that it's something I struggled with to really put my head around because it's it's not one or the other. In the startup, it seems like it is because I, I think people misuse the word balance like it's like absolute black and white blocks of time but it's more doing a self-check on what parts are probably lacking and allocating some time to it yeah as you talk about that like i reflect a lot on you know in startups they always talk about culture and i'm like what exactly does that mean are you advertising flexi time a ping pong table snacks okay great you have snacks but like how is that like at the I always say, what is the core of culture? And it's and, you, and they always say it's people. But if you don't develop your people, <laughs> yeah. that is what creates a cancerous culture. People don't yeah. feel like they're intellectually stimulated or learning. People don't feel like they're getting the you know feeling healthy. And so I, at the end of the day, I, I feel like that is how culture should be positioned. If, if, if you have a healthy mind, just you're healthy all around the well-being, I think that's what creates uh, an individual that's just going to create the best output for the company. And so that's where in startups, it gets a little bit skewed because you forget about all that other, all the other parts of wellness, right? You forget how to eat healthy, you know, yeah. take the time to work out. I'm not saying like you have to be fit, but like go out and take a walk in nature, whatever it might be. And then what can a company do? Yeah, you have to, you have your deliverables and get stuff done, but what do they do to upskill and make sure that you're creatively inspired and not feeling like you're just like a monkey in the whole system. And so th- I think that's a huge thing about, I, th- I think that plays a huge part in making sure there's uh, less people are burnt down the startup community because it's honestly the culture. And so it's just a matter of how are they promoting that within the, in the company to make sure that their employees are in the best physical, mental, emotional state uh, to, yeah. be, to be at their. Yeah. It's like what you mentioned, like there's a lot of, I think it's maybe a shallow understanding of wellness. There's like window dressing. So just because we have certain amenities, uh, we have a great culture, but no, that's just really just window dressing. It's, it's not really addressing the core needs of what actually leads to sustainable stickiness in terms of employee retention and also feeling actually 
believing you're a part of something greater. I think the, the wellness factor probably just tied tie into that. And it's maybe a you know, part of the leadership model that we don't talk about enough is how do you account for the wellness of your employees? Because ultimately, if you know they buy into it and they're how we frame balance, not in such a sense of black and white boxes that you don't bother. Like, I mean, there are, yes, it's like defining boundaries to a certain extent, but also it's like in such a way that it meshes well with everyone's aligned towards the same goals and that provides to, to healthier employers, happier employees that actually can then contribute to the best of the company. And this goes along with the theme of then maybe coaching, right? Say, say if you're a startup leader or if you even for yourself now, you are doing coaching yourself to learn the space better. What exactly is a coach? Who needs a coach? Why do we need coaches? Yeah, I'll first share a little bit about me and what led me to this. So when I was burnt out at Kind Cones, working at Mind Valley, I was familiar with a lot of these like modalities for healing. What can I do more of? Daily affirmations. You are good yeah. enough. Things like that. Or yeah, yeah, meditation, yeah, yeah. breath work. And I use a lot of these modalities on myself to try to feel less stressed, try to bring myself to be more centered. But at the end of the day, you a coach is somebody there to keep you accountable. And I realized that because I didn't have that, my, my recovery period, it just took so much longer than what it needed to be. And so essentially a coach is if you're dealing with a, a health issue, you can turn you can basically work with them and they will work with you on strategies to get you back to where you want to be. And so they just keep you accountable with certain homework and things. So that's also your responsibility, working with somebody and then just and then making sure that you do what you need to do to work self-development, bettering yourself and getting in a better place. But in, in, in the framework, though, of external accountability, I, I think that's very it's a very good point. Like, I, I think you do. I realized like the reason why I was able to push my career so far was but I, I maybe did it, I overextended too much of the fact where I'm not balanced, but it's because I'm beholden to other people, users, customers, uh, my team, investors, et cetera, that, that accountability does drive progress. And it seems like a coach is uh, one way to do external accountability. But then how do you factor in, in intrinsic accountability? Because even for me, like ever since I started doing the podcast and it's been on and off sometimes and it's hard to find the grit. I always felt that I needed to have some level of self-discipline tied with external accountability. Mm -hmm. And I've, maybe I've been too afraid to cross a divide of being even more extrinsically accountable. Maybe, I don't know, afraid of losing freedom or whatever. But uh, I always felt that internal motivation was more important. So how, how do you think about that in terms of the framework for coaching and also for your current clients or whatever, whoever you're working with now. The thing is, the good thing about a coach is the coach probes things where they actually ask you a lot of questions where it forces you to self-reflect because sometimes you could do it on your own, but you don't really think about the, the, the right questions or maybe the things that you really should be looking at. And they're looking at it from a different perspective because they're a little yeah. bit removed, right, from the whole process. And it's more of that it's... um going to a therapist, you talk to them, you offload, you share what happens. But I feel like the, the thing about a therapist that is lacking is it doesn't exactly follow through on the on the self work. So on the reflection, a coach is it's who are you? Why are you doing this? What is the reason that this is happening? And then it makes you really think a little bit more about your actions and then what you could do to change things. Because at the end of the day, it's you that are 
you're in the driver's seat. You're the one that's going to be able to change the trajectory of how things are happening. And so that's the thing with the coach is that external kind of like a stimuli to really like probe and help you dig deeper and get to the root cause of why you're experiencing, you're in this mental, emotional, physical state that you're in, that you don't want to be in. I think a a good way to put it then is it's mutual accountability. The the person needs to be accountable to themselves and also accountable to the coach. The coach is also now equally accountable in, I think, being more proactive and actually maybe developing strategies and programs and check-ins with the person they're coaching, which applies to almost everything, sports. It applies if you're a startup. One of the most famous uh, coaches in Silicon Valley was Bill Campbell. And one of the books I read on coaching was Trillion Dollar Coach, really excellent resource. Just learned a lot from that. And I think every time I thought about when I was building a team, it was literally just making sure everyone's a better version of themselves which included probably a lot of things we talked about, which is spiritual, social by team bonding, also making sure they're in touch with themselves. They have time for their friends and family too, and all, all the other pillars. So I think that it's this framework of mutual accountability, which is very important, maybe a distinction for coaching. Yeah. yeah. And then, because uh, I was just uh, thinking about reflecting about how you were sharing how as a manager, and th- this was my approach as well, how do I make sure, how do I check in with my team to make sure that they're okay? And so I wanted to add a little bit on in terms of you talk about relationships. Everything's relation relational in a company. You have people that are below you, you have peers that are at the same level as you, you have your the people you report to. So sometimes you're only thinking from the perspective of managing, it's down. But you kind of relationships are everywhere. You have up, you have lateral. And I realized that I was bad, I was okay, I was fine with managing down, but I was terrible, obviously, with managing myself and managing up. Mm. So I started to create, I started to get resentful. Like resentment seeped in when I I was like this blame game because I was like, they're not looking out for me. Like I do so much, they don't care. And then I realized, no, it's not that. Again, it comes down to what was it that I was doing that made them your boss or whoever respond the way that they were that, that they've been responding and I realized that again I didn't create boundaries that I should have respected myself so at the end of the day it's you need to create boundaries that you want if that if you want others to respect you need to respect it as well and so I became this person that there was no boundary they could come to me and they knew they could give me anything and I would I would my, I strive to get it done, but in the day you have a bandwidth, you can't get everything yeah. done. And it was just this nonstop to do this. And it was because I didn't create that precedent and that boundary in the beginning. And I was like, oh, how are you doing? But I didn't, I was also rubbish at delegating, even simple things. I was like, oh, I'll do it better. I can do it faster. But then the day, how, how are you also fostering the growth and development of your team? If you're not letting them do it, even if it takes them yeah. two times longer, three times longer. So the, this was my this was what I had learned about myself. And I was like, okay, if I go and in another environment, I need to be aware of this. How do I manage up? How do I make sure I communicate a certain way to my lateral peers and to people that I'm managing as well to make sure that not only are they in a good place, but am I in a good place so that they can have, they know their boundaries with me and know how to manage the relationship better. Yeah, that, that is one of my favorite models to teach. I've always put it in the context of communication, but I, I love the way you're framing it in terms of relationship management. You always have to manage a relationship 
above you, below you, and horizontally, which mm -hmm. is your own team, but also across departments in, in the context of a company, of course. But at the same time, the way I framed that was communication. You need good communication that flows both ways, up and down, below you, up and down, horizontally across. The one thing you said that was really good, though, was I, I did never include this in my model. was like, how are you communicating? Well, how's your relationship with yourself? And that also ties into how are you communicating with yourself, which I think was probably a missing part of the model of a good way to think about wellness also in a framework of how you are as a person and how that affects your team and what you're doing in life and your work too. So that's a pretty good model, I'd say. Given that then, how do you overcome imposter syndrome of, of being a coach? You know, at what, what point in time can you uh, internally say, I'm a coach? To be fair, I feel like anybody could be a coach. I honestly probably didn't need yeah. to. I mean, it's not like I went to school for it, but I, I did do a program. The great thing about the program is, I'll be frank, it's not like I learned anything earth shattering, but yeah. <laughs> it was a good way to really understand what a coach really does. And at, at the end of the day, your client has all the answers. What you're just helping them do is unpack it. And so you're like, what are your goals? And then you're basically asking those questions and they're talking. And then you're, mm -hmm. and then from what they share, that's yeah. where you set up all the recommendations because the recommendations are based off of what they believe in, what their internal motivation is, because you're mm -hmm. not going to be setting recommendations for stuff for something that they're not interested or motivated. To. A lot of the recommendations that I set for the clients that I'm working with is based off of what their personality type, what is what they're telling me that they're motivated to do. And so that's what we work on to get to work towards their goals. I'll be like, okay, this is your mini goal to work towards your bigger goal. And so at the end of the day, anybody could really be a coach. It's just all about asking the right questions, these high mileage questions, like getting to the root cause. Why is something happening? Who you are as an individual? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I don't yeah, think there's I an mean, imposter syndrome or anything. It's just a matter of... That's, I think it's also, you'll get a better feel for it after you've been doing it for a longer time and had more clients. It's just a matter of practicing and in a more formal way. I, I think informally, if you're involved in any type of, you know, exercise where you're solving a hard problem, building a company or even working in a big company, like you're doing informally coaching probably one way or another, if you're responsible beyond yourself. So I think that's a good point that every, everyone is a coach. And this, even though you're in a more formal setting, it's just a matter of just applying it more in a conscious way. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in it's setting. like that whole like mentor mentee relationship, right? Yeah. As a mentor, you are essentially coaching someone guiding yeah. someone it's yeah. just that maybe in, for me as a health coach somebody has something specific that they want yeah. to work through and so they're coming to me to sort yeah. that out i think we we covered a lot of the stuff very loosely about wellness but can we put in a very concise way then you know what is your framework for wellness uh, what exactly is it and how can we think about it yeah so i think at the end of the day I always say self-care, it's not a band-aid solution. It's really self-care is really doing the self-work and really digging deeper into the root cause for why you feel a certain way, whether it's physical, mental, emotional. And I always say you start with who are you? Because, and people sometimes really for the longest time, they don't know who they are. I kid you yeah. not, you could be like in your forties and still not know who you are as an individual. And, and until you understand that, you, because that is really the understanding of why people respond the way they do or why exactly if, if you don't understand who you are, why do people come to you? Why do people talk to you a certain way? And because at the end of the day, you're accountable for, you know, how you feel because you control everything. 
So if you allow yeah. people to, if you're a yes man or yes woman, you allow people yeah. to just be like throwing shit at you, that's going to snowball and create something. Or if you like to control everything and don't allow, want to delegate, that's another thing. So it's my, the whole thing starts at really who you are and then understanding all the, the different symptoms that are happening around you, like physically what's happening, what's not, what do you feel is off? mentally, yeah. emotionally, spiritually, what do you, and then, and then taking those specifics and then really digging deeper to be like, okay, why do I feel like I'm not creatively inspired? Or why do I feel like I'm always angry and yelling and resentful yeah. or whatever your yeah. experience. And then I always say journal because from what I believe in journaling and at one point I was like, who the hell wants to have a dear diary? And like you write down, <laughs> but yeah. what's great about a journal versus just talking about it is you can go back and it allows you for further reflection. Oh my God, now I can really connect the dots. And I don't know if that's because I'm very visually focused. And so that's why journaling works for, for me because I understand some other people are more like auditorily focused. So maybe just yeah. speaking about it might be their thing, but I do feel that or maybe it's maybe if it's journaling, not writing down, you could be like doing audio journaling or something and just listening back to it. But at the same time, yeah. because you've recorded it, you can go back and you can connect the dots. So I just feel like this whole process really helps to bring everything together. Because at, at the end of the day, like, you don't necessarily, I think in first round, it was like going, it was going the tra trajectory of going to work. It was different tiers, like tier one was short term. What are short term solutions? Like you can do breath work, meditation, whatever. And that might help to ground and center you in the moment. But if, if things are out of control, what do you do to, to have further resolution? And they're like, step two is maybe seeing a professional. What's that financial investment no. that you need to make? But then the day, like not everybody, I don't think everybody you don't necessarily need to go that route. You can still do this first. You can have that internal accountability first before you feel yeah. like, okay, I can go externally. And I forgot what the third tier was. I don't know if you recall what it was, but um, yeah. So I didn't feel like you necessarily yeah. had to go in the direction of, oh, I must see a health coach to really get yeah. out. I think that's like at that level where things are already like completely out of control. I think where I yeah. want to step in is how do I become more self-aware more in the beginning stages before it gets to that point yeah. where I'm like really a mess. It sounds pretty similar. I think it's, I think the first step always, and maybe in the, the framework of wellness is just like being able to, and I think this is a very central theme to wellness, just being, ha having a high degree of self-awareness, right. self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. But the problem is like that, that, that requires a lot of work to do. So I guess maybe in a sense, a coach helps navigate the first hard step. And then I think uh, the framework you were talking about, I think, was doing small steps, then maybe having to do investments and something that requires time and energy. Like So I, I think uh, it's like you said, that they were also saying that I think you could choose, like you don't have to do all of them. You could pick what really works for you. Some people just need professional, then they need to pay right away. Some people maybe just they, they can't afford it, so it's not for them. So I think what I think what you both guys, both frameworks are saying is that it's something that's very accessible that you could do now. You don't necessarily need professional care or help, but it's something you could also do yourself. It's just you have to be able to probably reflect and you have different tools to doing, whether it be journaling or whether it be recording yourself or even talking to a friend or a professional. So it seems like it's a pretty good model. Just understand the self and then probably identify areas in this kind of framework of what you think is lacking and then maybe building a, a plan around that and then just working at it consistently probably, right? Yeah. And I'm not knocking the health coach. I'm clearly I'm in that space. Okay. But um, 
what's great is there are certain things that a health coach may raise that you may not learn or think about on your yeah. own. Here's an example, the concept of yin and yang. I never really thought yeah. much about it, the feminine and masculine energy. And it's more, yeah. I feel like I, I was in the yang. Yeah, I was in yang mode for the longest time. Mas masculine doing versus yeah. feminine and just being. And so that's where yeah. like being out of balance all the time. So yeah, and so it's like having somebody to raise these things and be like, oh, I never thought about that. Maybe that's yeah. what's happening. Yeah, well. that's a good point. It's not necessarily a coach is there to, to say you're doing something wrong, but it's to bring up perspectives. Because in theory, a coach, if they've been doing it long enough, they will have come across so many varied problems and contexts that may fit or may not fit or something that's new that you never really thought about. Mm -hmm. so just helping you see probably new horizons. Exactly. And I think one of the tricky th things though, is like, I don't know if you ever experienced it yet, but there's a lot of smart people, high IQ people who believe they can introspect and they, they have a certain model of themselves. Mm -hmm. But if you, have you ever encountered a person who you, you come to them, you know, with a certain idea, but they reject it because they feel they can do it themselves. They, they know themselves better and then you're just wrong. Because I feel like there's like a maybe like a, a fallacy <laughs> where, where people just like, no, no that's not true. I, I know myself. I can introspect. Like, does this happen or no? Oh, well, yeah. There's tons. I call them narcissists. Am I wrong in describing <laughs> them as that? Uh, I, it's, I mean, that's kind of, you have to walk a fine line because it's also quite clinical when you give it a, a blanket label like that. So yeah, I I, I've been very, honestly, like my first thoughts like to say something like that too. But then I realized it doesn't really help the situation when you frame it that way. But if you encounter that, how do you break through that? How do you, what are some ways you can go about reaching a place where they could be op at least open to other things that, that you're giving them as feedback? Maybe it's coming from the place of like understanding why they feel that mm. idea is worthy yeah. of entertaining because until you really understand like where they're coming from, it doesn't, mm. yeah, you, you just won't understand why they're not, why they're not going to be entertaining their idea and why they feel like their perspective is the, the best way. And yeah, it's more of asking these questions why rather than forcing it. What I, what I think would help then is because say, say you're in a context of a conflict and this is this arises between two people working together. Mm -hmm. Probably a third party coach actually is easier to probe that versus, you know, say you're, you're two conflicting ideas and people are trying to, to come to a you know, mutual agreement. Both people are just going to be rejecting each other's ideas. If they don't, if, if they're both in the same mindset. Right. They're so I guess what really helps is it, yeah. No, someone in a very calmer kind of way that's not bought into it maybe you could help me bring that perspective about or that line of questioning where it does become open i guess yeah but but it, it's the same thing like when you're in a team environment would it you could bring in somebody who's aware of the project and bring in the key questions of okay what is the ultimate goal that you're trying to solve and then weighing that you have somebody that is that arbiter or whatever? It's yeah. kind of like i think a lot of people yeah they don't have those tools or or they're not aware that this is, you know, a way to do it. So I guess this mm -hmm. is why conversations like this help. Mm -hmm. It's just they don't have the language. They, they're just stuck in their own patterns without being aware of how they are or, or their modes or patterns. Like you said, your patterns of not recognizing what leads to your burnout, right? Like just we just maybe we don't make the time and space to develop tools, mental models to identify and then use it proactively to resolve these kind of problems. Yeah, and that's why I say it's super important when you think about company culture especially for startups, mm. how do you build that in? Because that yeah. is what sets the tone for, and, and COVID's like amplifying things too. I already talked yeah. about blurring the line between when um, work and my personal time, but I still working like late into 
burning the midnight yeah. oil. And again, it's just a matter of how can, I guess it's HR and management's involvement. How do they make sure that filters down? Leadership, man. It's, yeah. it's, it always falls to the leader, man. <laughs> exactly. So um, I always because, say if the fish yeah. stinks from the head, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be true, good. True. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess for the last question then. So like uh, you describing your journey, right? There, there's these periods where you start to get, maybe you weren't aware or you're slightly aware or the signs are manifested in that you're physically throwing up and getting migraines and you're going to feel like you're going to die. This leads to probably a period of getting stuck. And then... Yeah. So what is this idea of you get stuck, then how do you get unstuck? And like for you, you mentioned, if you don't do the homework earlier, it leads to periods of longer being like stuck longer. Like even for me at that time, you were building kind codes, I was building Jetsbury. And I feel ever since I stopped working in that kind of environment, I go in between stuck and unstuck a lot. So I don't know. How do you think about this? How do we realize stuck and how do we get unstuck? Yeah. Not everybody has the luxury of just literally quitting. And yeah, that's very, it's a very privileged thing that we have. So that's a very good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So not everybody has that ability to just like have the funds, quit, take that time to like self-reflect and reset. Journey, go to Bali. <laughs> yeah. I think again, it's just, and most people, and I think the most realistic thing is you do that self-work, you, you understand what's happening, knowing what boundaries you can create for yourself. And then obviously it's going to be hard to reset within the current environment. And already uh, from a realistic standpoint, I doubt it's going to get better. So that, you're talking about COVID, right? Yeah. COVID and, ju- and just saying like in your work environment, if, okay, if, if you're already no. burnt out and oh, there's a okay. certain dynamic that's already set in motion, a certain relationship, mm. you've done the self-work you understand what's happening. You're like, okay, these are the boundaries I'm creating. It's quite different. It's quite difficult to make that shift within in, within that company or in that environment that it-, it That's a good that, point, yeah. So what the next best step, if you're not in a position, obviously, to just straight up quit, is you're obviously going to look for another role. You move into mm-hmm. that role. And because you've done that work to understand yourself and know what your boundaries are, you should be putting that into practice in the next yeah. role, in the new environment where you can set a new tone for yourself. And that's what I always, and that's the thing about like self-care. It's all about like, how do you put the things into practice? You can have all yeah. these me time and all that stuff, but if you don't put it into practice, you're not really doing self-care, self-work. I think that would be my most practical advice is for us, if I'm quitting, I'm, I'm creating a new environment for myself. I'm extracting myself from that environment that's not working for myself. But I've done that work. I still need to financially support myself. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to look for another role that suits me, is a better fit for me, move into that new environment and just making sure I set that tone properly yeah. so that I have a better experience than what I had in the previous. Yeah, there's two quite important themes there, I think. One is I've always questioned... And this is a very important question for startups too, because at what point in time do you just need to stop, right? And like, do you give up from either from a leadership perspective, do I stop investing time with this person because it's not a fit, a good fit. And a lot of times founders and people managing in startups, they just 
they need feel that need to fix it because they feel they have time to fix it. But in reality, it's lots of times it's just not working for this current setup and environment, and you don't actually have the luxury of time. Which so in hindsight, I always talk about this with a lot of other founders, and they always end up saying, if it didn't work, you should just like, and if you're managing someone below you, you should have just probably figured out a way to get them to leave sooner, or and of course in a mutual way that that everyone's respected and, and it's in a health done in a, a way that everyone can agree. It's just not working. So sometimes you just do need to just extract yourself from the situation. Or if you are the person who is, you know, obviously, hopefully you're not feeling yourself as a victim, but if you're feeling like you can't do much about the situation, like you said, developing a plan, you need to feed yourself, find a new way to do that, then remove yourself, and then maybe continue the work of all those things we talked about in, in the wellness kind of mindscape. So I think that's a very interesting concept that when is it right to stop, either if you are the person who needs to leave or whether you're the person who's managing to ask them to leave. And then I guess the second thing is the one thing I really found, like at first it didn't really hit me, was boundaries. Like I was just like, boundaries? You know, this, why do I need boundaries? It's like, I'm a startup where, especially in early stage startup, because you're so close with everyone. And there's a lot of argument and camps between how you do that. Do you, do you have like, like wall the boundaries, but then you don't get close, then there's no no camaraderie developed, no culture developed, no belief developed. But then if you get too close, no boundaries also tends to come out and bite you in the butt too. So I think you know, in the context of, of the last question, in, in terms of getting stuck and unstuck, I think the boundaries point, I, I start to understand a little bit better. Like certain relationships might've worked out better. Certain conflicts could have been resolved better with more clear boundaries. And at the same time, things could have also moved along better if I had to just ask some people to leave earlier or if I had left earlier myself too. And I probably would have ended up me not being stuck for so long, more than a year, and finding it hard to be productive or getting the right mindset or you know, getting back to belief or the feelings that things can be better. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you're saying. You, It would have been better if you asked people to leave earlier, but sometimes you have this savior like yeah. complex, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to put them out. They can improve, they can get better. But at the end of the day, you, you don't have a solution for everybody. And so I think that's where the boundaries come in. You're like, I can only help you up to this point. And I think that's the realization I've had is I can't do everything for everyone. I can't mm. be everywhere and do everything. And so that's how I look at, that's how I look at boundaries. It's not just not necessarily for myself. It is for myself, but in relation to helping other people. Yeah. Yep. It's perfect. Do the homework. Try to understand yourself. Think about boundaries and everything else we talked about wellness, right? So I think it's the perfect place to end. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. Thanks, Jacqueline. Okay. Hey, listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. As usual, if you like the episode or learn something new, share this episode with your friends and family. Share it to anyone who you think could benefit from thinking more about their own wellness or if they are responsible for the wellness of others. What did I learn in this episode? I learned that balance is way more nuanced and attainable than I previously thought. I still stand by my comment and believe that Typically, for early-stage startups, you're going to have to over-index and push to get unbalanced in certain areas to achieve specific goals in order to make progress happen. Early employees will also need to get on board with this. However, however, there has to be checkpoints and wellness audits that happen in those stressful moments. During those unbalanced sprints along the long marathon, communication and relationships can't get to the point where they break down. It's important for employees and leaders to work together to figure out which areas are heading towards trouble. 
and there has to be creativity and awareness needed to figure out the best solution to get some balance back, even if it's for a short while. Hopefully with this method, you can keep the team and everyone's sanity together to hit a long-term stretch of stability and sustainability. There are definitely times in a startup where you hit a plateau before you ramp up to your next inflection point. I have lived through this many times myself. Other times, I've just driven myself into the ground for many years straight as well. I'm known to be overly optimistic at times, but I do hope you believe me and find wellness and balance in your life too. EOA out.